Hi, welcome to another episode of Studio Z. Today I'm joined by Charmin, um, who was recommended by Vivek, a previous guest who worked at Stripe. Hi, Charmin. Hey, Josh. Great to be here. Thank you for coming along. So introduce yourself uh, to the audience. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sounds good. Hey, everybody. I'm Charmin. So if you rewind back to when I was in college, I studied electrical engineering. And from there, I was a rocket scientist for the beginning of my career. Wow. So I worked at Raytheon. I worked on missile integration and radar algorithm design. Learned a lot. Was surrounded by a ton of super smart people, which I'm lucky to say throughout my career has been true. Um, and after a while, I just realized I wasn't super passionate about the defense industry anymore. And I wanted to be in the Bay Area where all the tech was happening. So I moved out to the Bay Area, joined a startup that nobody's heard of, learned a lot about what not to do, because that's why no one's heard of us. You should tell me about that. I know. <laughs> yes. Um, and then from there, I worked at Twitch. And that is really, that's when I switched over to product management, found out that was the career I always loved and just didn't know existed. Got it. Um, stayed at Twitch for six years, started as an individual contributor, left as a VP of product and engineering. Incredible experience. Um, went to Meta for almost two years yeah, okay. and now I'm at Stripe and it's been seven months and I'm loving it. Awesome. Okay. So there's some surprises in there. I do want to spend a little bit of time on the rockets and yeah. missiles. So, so what, what was your day like? Were you designing rockets? Like what, what did you actually do in so, that career? So we were, so I started as a systems engineer coming out of electrical engineering. So it was really like missile integration, making sure all the pieces fit together. Okay. Um, and just getting the systems up and running, like every new iteration, like testing all the parts and stuff. And so it's a lot more like communication, like collaborating across teams and like just talking to everybody and bringing it all together. Um, but I actually realized pretty quickly that the missile is the dumb part of the system. Huh. The radar is the smart one. So the radar is doing all the thinking, all the calculating, and then it's telling the missile what to do, where to go, where to self-implode. Um, and so I very quickly switched over to radar because that was more exciting and there was a lot more to learn there. And so I worked on clutter mitigation algorithms. So basically how you take all of the incoming inputs and filter out the stuff that is not an actual threat. Hmm. This was a defense missile. Yeah, okay. So we're just, we're looking for incoming threats. And if there ever was a threat, you would send the missile to go take it out. Um, but there's so much noise in the world, right? Like different things show up in different ways. It's like, how do you get rid of helicopter noise or even rain or snow? Or like if you're looking out over the water, the ocean and the sun reflecting off of that, like tons of super interesting stuff. So, I mean, I think that might take the award as like the most interesting other career you've had <laughs> on Studio Z. And I can't think of something more different. Tell me if this is wrong. Yeah. Than like building SaaS software, you know, oh like you do Stripe. <laughs> Versus building missiles and like the, how how did I get here? Yeah, and, and just what it's like running a program and that like how yeah. seamless everything has to be and yeah. flawless. Whereas you know, I mean, you're doing payments, you can't really mess those up either. But you know, <laughs> the portal can have a mistake here and there or whatever, right? The, the yeah. website. Wow, that's wild. That's really cool. Um, so I'd love to get into some of these. Very excited. You know, we've had folks from Meta and Stripe before, but I, I love your your thoughts on your experiences at those places so we can sort of compare notes. Yeah. Um, but Twitch, I don't think I've really met someone from Twitch before. Oh. Um, so I'd love to talk about that. But before we do, let's talk quickly about Stripe. So what yeah. are you doing at, at Stripe? You're working with Vivek, I'm guessing that's yes. what you recommended you. So I tell am. us a bit about what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm working with Vivek. I lead our product for revenue and finance automation. So the entire team, and we are basically doing all of the payments adjacent stuff. So we are there to build this suite of software tools 
for businesses to manage and grow their revenue. Okay. And we're there to grow with those businesses. So that covers everything from billing, all types of billing that you might need to do, like recurring revenue for your business models, to tax. We want to be able to just make it super easy for you to collect tax and file it. Um, and then we also do a bunch of data, revenue, accounting, and all of that too. That seems like almost unlimited potential scope, right? Like yes. of a product you could build. Oh yeah. We do not have the problem of not knowing what to do. There okay. is so much to do in this space and we're just trying to do it as fast as possible. And so it's a question of prioritization. Yes, ruthless prioritization. I always think that's the hardest problem in software. That there's a saying that in software engineering, it's naming and cache invalidation are the two hardest things. I'm like, no, it's not, it's prioritization. So <laughs> it really is. Spend time there's a great quote from a product leader I admire who says, if it's not painful, you're not actually prioritizing. Is that Amy Bohr? Yes. Okay. Old meta leader. Well, I'd love to have on the show sometime, actually. I think she'd be great. Uh, she wrote some great notes. I know. Uh, she's an incredible leader. Uh, the one with the spikes, what your career feels like as you're finding yes. up. Into, I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I love that quote as well. Um, okay. So I want to talk about Twitch. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have a fairly, I think, naive understanding of Twitch. I, I remember the first time I encountered it. Um, when I, I saw folks watching a while back now, before it became commonplace, and I, you know, I learned that, that people watched people play games, which yeah. I used to play a lot of video games yeah. as a youngster. Um, I play a little now and then uh, these days. And so the idea of watching video games seemed insane, but you have a sort of a way of thinking about that, right? That you yeah. mentioned to me today. So like, you know, what would you compare it to? Yeah, I mean, when I first started working there, it had just been acquired by Amazon, but mm -hmm. still hadn't really broken into mainstream popular culture. And people would ask me, like, why would I watch somebody play video games? <laughs> and my very snarky retort was always, well, why do you watch someone else play sports? Yeah. Right? Like, you, you can go play soccer, you can go play football, but we all spend a lot of time watching NBA games, NFL games. Like, just, it's something that we love to do. And you can think of video games like electronic sports, esports. that's where the name really came from. Yeah, yeah. And so it really, there is like a form of like art and sport that comes into playing video games and people love watching other people do it. They can learn from them, they can cheer them on and root for them. And you know, I think really Twitch goes back to like the origins, which was just in TV and they were just trying mm -hmm. to do a bunch of live streaming all the time. And they noticed that the area that was getting the most traction was people who were playing video games. Right. So that's why they spun off of Justin TV and created Twitch and just embraced the market that they were noticing that was coming up organically. And I think the reason why Twitch is such a special place is because they were the first place to give gamers a home online. Right, right. And these are people who were usually like at home on the couch playing video games or on their computer playing video games and, and they were able to connect without having to be in the same place. And it seems obvious when you say it like that. Yeah. You know, when you compare it yeah. to sports, it's just like, well, of course, why would In retrospect, yeah. There, there, there is something, actually, I don't think off on too much of a tangent here, I was saying this the other day, about humans really like watching other human endeavor. Yeah. To the point where, you know, it's, there's a lot going on in AI. Um, <laughs> I, won't, I don't want to go down a, a rabbit hole, I promise. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's, there's one thing that's interesting. It's like AI has been better at chess than humans for some time now. Um, but humans still love watching other humans play chess, yeah. like be it online or yeah. in the park and love playing, even though they know a computer can do it better. Um, we still really respect something about like human 
interaction and challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that's that sets up someone to know what Twitch is? Or would yeah. you add any other color to it? So yeah, I think the important color there is really what came out of it. So not just watching other people play video games, but we like the streamers who are big on Twitch, they have formed communities. Mm. They are places where people feel like they belong to something, mm. and that's really special, and mm. that's really what fueled like the entire business of Twitch. Mm. Um, and so, like, kind of every product that we launched and everything that was super successful, it was like listening to the community and giving them what they wanted and what they needed, and it was it's been it was so, really cool. So that's a little different to watching sports, though, right? It yeah. feels a little bit more bi-directional, yeah. whereas yeah. sports is very broadcast, like one yeah. to many, right? It's, that's it's true. Quite describing feels. And that was that was really what made Twitch unique. It was we had yeah. our real, real-time live streaming and chat happening at the same time. Got it. Right. And so these streamers who are really successful, they're not only really good at gaming, they're also very good at building community by being able to multitask while they're playing their games. Mm. They're reading the chat that's flying by at a fast pace. They're responding to chat and calling things out in the stream live. Okay. And so the people who are chatting are getting that feedback, which feels really good, right? You get that like endorphin boost, like, oh my God, this person who I love, like yeah. admire, just recognized me in the stream. Yeah. And so like that is how you really just build the sense of belonging between the streamer and the community and it just grows from there. I think we see a little bit of this happening to sport now as well. I know, so I'm a big Formula One fan. Yeah. And I know a lot of the Formula One fans, I think they go on Twitch actually. They go on somewhere where they play racing games. Probably, yeah. I think it'd be like a busman's holiday call actually, yeah. but no, they, they play more racing games <laughs> and they race a car for a career. And that's where they interact with their audience and you know, they have a following on there. And so I assume it's Twitch, it will be, right? Yeah. Um, uh, interesting. Okay, so I think we've set a, a picture of what Twitch is. So you were there, did you say six years? Yep. So that's a pretty impressive career journey. You know, I don't understand the levels at Twitch, but you went from like yeah. an IC to a VP, yeah. product and eng, I think you spanned right yeah. at the end. So t tell us the story quickly, like yeah. what happened at Twitch? Yeah, so basically I came in, it was my first job as a product manager. Before that I'd been in engineering for a while and it was actually perfect because they put me on a super technical product. It was mm. a video player. So very minimal design, okay. user facing, right? You have like play and pause and a settings menu, which was great because I knew nothing about design back then, but super technical. We were actually transitioning off of Flash to HTML. Flash? <laughs> I know, this wow. is dating me. <laughs> okay. And so that was the big project at the time. Um, we also introduced like adaptive bitrate streaming and that sort of thing. And so it was just, it was really great for me to get my feet sturdy as a product manager yeah. and it was just the right amount of discomfort because it was still a highly technical product which mm -hmm. I had familiar background and confidence in right so it was the perfect way to ramp up and get better at product management within a year I was establishing myself like I'm good at product management I'm good at leading by influence I think that's really critical mm -hmm. in product like just collaborating being able to put myself in other people's shoes mm -hmm. building empathy and then using that to drive alignment on tricky things to move forward. Yeah. And so then they started putting me on like bigger and bigger stuff. Like at one point, I think I was a single PM matched to two different engineering teams and we were like shipping experiments all the time and like doing a bunch of stuff. It was like very chaotic, but awesome. Just making a ton of progress. Um, company was only 300 people when I joined, right? Wow. So like we were small and then we grew to, I think like around 2,500 in our heyday mm -hmm. and then kind of plateaued back down. And so just, it was really awesome. Like I just got to keep growing and learning. And as the company grew, 
from 300 to 600 in one year, 600 to 1200 in another year, if you are staying ahead of that, then you can grow with the company as well. Right. So right. that's really what ended up happening. So I went from PM to a manager of PMs. And then the big jump was after three years when I joined the executive team mm -hmm. as a leader of both engineering and product management. And mm -hmm. at Amazon, they have a construct for that called the single-threaded leader. Right, right, right. So I became a single-threaded leader. We were a small team of 30 people, but then over the next three years, we grew from 30 to 60 and then yeah. 60 to 120. So it was just, it was, it was a ton of fast growth, a ton of hard work to stay ahead of it and figure out what's important and do what was best for the customers and the company and then the team. Um, I learned a lot. So I want to get into the culture of Twitch a little yeah. bit, like positives and negatives. Yeah. Um, I mean, it achieved a lot. So, you know, it's that's definitely impressive in, in some regards for sure. One little thing I want to ask you though, off the hook, what's the biggest What's the hardest thing about going from one discipline, managing one discipline, product, yeah. to suddenly taking on an engineering team as well? Like, do, yeah. you, do you remember any particular challenges? Though? I do. So the interesting thing there is a lot of times when you're in a role, like you have a job of what you're pushing for, right? right? So a lot of times product managers will be like, okay, how can we get this out faster? Mm -hmm. yeah. And like, what can we do? And they'll be asking engineering, like, are there shortcuts we can do to be scrappy? Or like, do we need to build it out and scalable and, you know, do it sure. that way? And you figure out what you need and when. But when you're leading both, it's like you have to wear both hats. Yeah, the opposite final. Exactly. Right? So yeah. I no longer can just push in one direction. I also need to represent engineering and make sure that we're doing all of like the central engineering stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. like being okay. good citizens as a part of the company, working on latency and all of that, like decreasing cost. And so all of a sudden you're now putting on different hats mm. as a leader. And I think that was like the biggest switch was like I was used to operating as the PM who was pushing. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden I had to balance all of it. And I remember in meetings, I'd be like, okay, I'm putting on my hat to be conscious about the cost of the spend. And then I'd be like, all right, now I'm putting on my hat to go focus on this. And it was just, you know, always. Do you feel you were a little bit more PM friendly at first and then swung over? Or did you find, uh, did you overcorrect or? I think it wasn't more that I was more on one versus the other. I thought that like we'd be able to go do whatever we wanted okay. and we would push for exceptions and things like that and then they would they would crack down. I see. And then it was like, okay, so I needed to figure out where I had like control over what I was doing and then where I needed to like fall in and be a good citizen of the company. And that was more of the struggle for me rather than like end versus PM. It was yeah, like pushing the boundaries and figuring out what we had full ownership over. Got it, got it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the culture of Twitch yeah. then. You know, I, I mean, how would you describe it to an outsider who's thinking of coming in? I think Twitch is you know, it's a really special place to work because it has some of the most beloved users ever. Mm. Like, I really think we have the most loyal users on earth. Mm. It was incredible as a PM. Like, literally, like, you would get feedback for everything you were doing. And feedback is a gift. Mm -hmm. It's not always a happy gift, but it is always a gift, right? And so there was, like, no dearth of getting feedback from users, hearing from them, being able to talk to them. They were always willing like that part of Twitch is really awesome. And so if you mm -hmm. want to work at a place where you're building a product that you know is loved, it's helping people make a living doing what they love, mm -hmm. which was never an op opportunity for them before mm -hmm. the existence of this company. Like that is really special. Um, I think the other interesting thing is really asking yourself, like, how do I like to operate? Mm. Right. And so Twitch has a lot of things that kind of like falls in with the way Amazon operates. Mm. And the meeting culture, I think, is pretty intense. 
Okay. Right? And so we used to kind of call it verbal jousting. And so it was basically like, you know, some people are super comfortable operating that way and other people are very uncomfortable, right? And I was one of the people who was uncomfortable. So I remember like I would prep before meetings. I'd be looking at all the dashboards, making sure I knew all the data, double checking the numbers because I could be in a meeting and be asked to pull out a data point at any given time. Okay. And I felt like I had to have it all memorized going in. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was the type of thing like people would ask like, oh, well, why aren't you doing it this way? And like, I would need to know the data. I'm like, well, actually the data shows this, which is why we're, we're suggesting that. So it was super detail oriented. Super detail oriented on top of it. And honestly, like they were great habits to build sure. as a PM. Like I still carry that like data obsession with me through to today. Yeah. But the way that we had to do it was definitely like pushing me out of my comfort zone. So, so there's probably some stuff about growth and how you know whether you, you find it easier going into that environment later. But, but yeah. actually, just make it make verbal jousting real for me. When I think of jousting, I think about <laughs> knights on a horse with long sticks, right? Yes. You know, yes. two horses charging. Don't know what that looks like in a meeting. So what? What is verbal jousting? I mean, I'm sure we've all seen this in some culture everyone's worked on. Yeah. So what's, what's an example? Yeah, I mean, okay, say you're going in and we're talking about our funnel. Okay. All right, we're talking about the funnel and someone says like, oh, well, this part of the funnel is bleeding out. Okay. How many people are going to remember exactly what the data was for that part of the funnel? Right, right. At any given time. And who is going to go and like check the person who said it's bleeding out? Like, are you going to pull up a dashboard and have it ready to go? And be like, actually, that part's pretty healthy right yeah, now. And yeah. this is the area that's bleeding out. That was the type of thing that would happen on a regular basis. So it's like a sort of uh, mental assault course almost yeah. in terms of being able yeah. to follow on, on data. And, and do you feel like if you didn't, you know, if you didn't have the data to hand, that wasn't good. You, you, I'm not sure what the phrase is. Yeah, because saying. I think as a leader, you want to make sure that you are representing the mm -hmm. right state of business mm -hmm. and representing your team and the decisions that your team is making, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, it, the, I use the jousting terms. It's like I felt like I was arming myself with right. all the right data and the facts before going into meetings. Your to shield make your sure, stick on your yes, yeah. yes, that I could shield the team from any like leadership thrash and and also make sure that you know our work was being understood and why we were doing it. So it probably feels uncomfortable. It feels a bit like sounds a bit like a hazing almost every meeting, <laughs> right? You know. Um, but I guess like the upsides of that are is those meetings are very high bandwidth. There's no yes. asynchronous like looking up of information. It's like you know yeah. it, you've locked it in. It's inside yeah. the dictionary in your head. Yeah. So meetings were probably quite efficacious, really. Is that is that fair? I mean, I think so. But what's interesting is Amazon and then eventually also Twitch has a strong document culture, right? Mm. Like writing six pagers mm. and getting approval of your strategy or your planning process. Um, and so what was really interesting was, you know, I remember talking with my manager while I was there saying like, should I get even better at these meetings? Like, should mm. I be working to improve? And he was like, you know, think about how decisions are being made. Most of the important decisions are still being made through the six page documents that everybody has time to prepare and write in advance and then read and give comments. And that's how we really do most of the deliberating. And that was kind of like a switch for me in a good way, because then I was like, okay, if we're ever in a meeting and we're jousting, mm. the question to really ask is, are we trying to make an important decision out of this? Mm. And that took off the pressure for me, because a lot of times it wasn't leading to a big decision in any one way. And it was more of just kind of like we were 
brainstorming or thinking about what we could be doing. And if we ever did start to go down a decision path, I've had the agency be like, hey, let's take a moment and make sure we're like double checking our work and, yeah. and that we're making all the right calls here instead of making like a snap judgment in so the middle of a meeting. So maybe an example, I, I certainly see this sometimes where folks kind of pick, I don't want to say an argument, but you know, there's a, there's a point where there's a little bit of combat going on around it. Yeah. And that becomes the focus of the discussion and you forget what the overarching goal of the discussion yeah. is. Yeah. Like we're trying to solve this problem. Exactly. And then it's just like, who's winning? On the yeah, it becomes about who's winning basis. instead of like, what is the best thing for the customer or the business mm -hmm. and like the conversation that we really need to be having. Interesting. So do you feel though, so you want, at first it sounds like that was some discomfort for you. Oh, lots uh, of discomfort. <laughs> yeah, like a real a sort of growth, a real growth. Yeah. Uh, this is growth and it's painful. Yeah. Um, do you feel like it's armed you now where you're, you'd be much more comfortable in an environment like, like that? Is, and do yeah. you think that's a good thing overall? In a way, yes. Right? I think that um, I learned a lot. It taught me a lot. And in all of these situations, for me, it's always like, what do I want to learn to improve myself? And then what do I also want to take away about how I don't want to behave? Mm -hmm. Right? And so you kind of get a little bit of both. And then you can turn it into what you want to be. Like as you continue to be a leader and grow and have a bigger team, that culture comes from you, right? And so it really helped me be super intentional about as I became more senior, understanding like the impact of my words on a team um, and kind of like those nuances, right? Like having a super senior leader go talk to an ICPM yeah. can actually be more disruptive sometimes. And so just to be more mindful about how I'm showing up, how I'm talking to the team and encouraging them and asking them questions and coming from a place of curiosity um, and just trying to create more of the type of an environment that I think is more inclusive to everybody. Interesting. So, you know, it reminds me a little bit of when I think about old Microsoft versus new Microsoft. And I'll be a little <laughs> unkind about old Microsoft. So yeah. I worked there long before Satya, you know, became the CEO. And there was definitely certain parts of the organization where I would say, I won't name any names. Um, <laughs> you know, it kind of was a good thing to be a jerk, if I can yeah. use that phrase. Yeah. You could get by. And one of the things I liked about Facebook's culture is I didn't see a lot of that. Like, it was kind of... No. Jerks were kind of filtered out of the system pretty quickly. Yeah. There was some passive aggression. There was some politicking or whatever. I don't think, I think it's unavoidable in human existence, right? Yeah. But generally, there wasn't this, like, someone can just go and throw the weight around all over the place and, you know, create all kinds of collateral damage and still do great in their career without yeah. any kind of uh, comeback on them. So, I don't know. It, it sounds a little bit like that's something along your mindset. Like, what would you, you know, if what's the unconditionals that come with Charmaine? as a as a as a leader now like when you think about the culture you want to create like what does that look yeah like? um so what what's coming to mind for me here is actually our one of our senior leaders at twitch recently gave me feedback after i'd been at the company for a few months and he was like you know i've heard from multiple people now that you are very like empathetic and compassionate but mm. you also hold a really high bar mm. and i loved that because that is exactly who i want to be like, I'm not going to take bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's have the real conversation. But I get where you're coming from. I'm approachable. I'm not going to be harsh in a meeting. Um, but I don't think that has to preclude us from being able to do great work. 
and getting shit done and like moving with urgency. And so it's really just like, how can we foster an environment where everyone feels psychologically safe, okay, comfortable to have the real talk that we need to have and to know that there's no blame coming out of it, right? but we're going to figure out how to move forward in the best way possible and as quickly as possible. Like we're here to help. Interesting. Okay. So I like that phrase, empathetic, but hold high bar. Yeah. And that was someone at Stripe who said someone, yeah. a, a leader from that when you joined recently. Um, uh, yeah, I really like that. Um, I think I also like that you mentioned the idea of psychological safety. I think, you know, ev everyone's different in terms of the cultures they enjoy, but it's, it's almost like the interviews. Do you remember the product sense interview at Facebook? Yes. And, <laughs> do uh, I? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do a lot of interviewing when you're at Facebook. Um, and, um, I remember thinking, me going through that process, is I'm not very creative under pressure. There's yeah. like pressure. I'm, I'm a creative person. Most people would like cite that as one of my attributes. Yeah. But under pressure, I'm not. Yeah. And I think psychological safety is like one of those things where if you want to get the best work out of people, you really do need an environment where people feel uh, psychologically safe. And I think it's actually a good job transforming Microsoft into that place where they did start to weed out, uh, as awesome. I understand it, the, the jerks and so on. Fascinating. Okay, I love that. Um, so it sounds like Twitch was an incredible experience. It was. So, it really was. Like both from, you know, my career perspective, but also the business. Like while I was there, we went from being totally under the radar yeah. to mainstream popular culture. Like Fortnite went huge. Ninja yeah. became a celebrity. That was in 2018. And like we were there for all of that. And it's just, it's an incredible ride. And yeah. then even having the company grow from 300 to 600 to 1200, like doubling year over year, it's, it's a huge cultural shift. And you're basically like at the front row seat of a roller coaster. Like yeah. you just get to see all the highs and lows of growing fast, trying to maintain the same culture or figuring out how the culture needs to adapt to the growth. Just lots of really interesting challenges along the way. That's awesome. It's so cool. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that actually. I've not seen that kind of growth in a, in a place. I've not seen it go through that tipping point. So I'm quite, yeah. I'm quite jealous of that. So let's talk about your next role. Next up was, was Meta. Yeah. So what were you doing at Meta? And then yeah. we'll talk a little bit about the culture there. Yeah. So I joined Facebook specifically at okay. Meta to lead their news product team. Oh, okay. And yeah. I was, you know, coming out of Twitch after six years, I was like, I want to do something different that feels like really mission driven and impactful in that mm. kind of a way and so news was like you know in this is 2021 and so it's like news has a really big impact especially mm. through social media and thinking about like civic discourse at a global scale sure. i was like that feels super impactful like, let's go do that um three days after joining the creator org also merged under my team okay. and so now i'm managing news and creators which was like a very interesting combination um and you know not long after i joined we also had all of the layoffs and it was just a really tough time the economy was crashing and meta had to get very focused it was the year of efficiency mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. mark was saying and so i was like all right i need to think ahead as a leader how are we going to be more efficient mm. um, long story short i was the leader of a creator team by the end of the year. Okay. And um, the thing that I'll also add to that is what was going on in my life personally. Okay. So when I joined Meta, six weeks later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, wow. Okay. And it was stage 2A. So they told me, you know, it was a very like beatable, curable cancer, but it was still going to be a journey. Like I had to go through the trifecta of chemo, 
double mastectomy surgery and nice. radiation, and then a bunch of maintenance chemo and treatments that kind of keep going after. And, you know, very quickly, Meta became my cancer company, huh. right? Huh. Like, I had only been there for six weeks. I was a new leader trying to ramp up in the pandemic. We hadn't returned to the office yet. And now, all of a sudden, I have this diagnosis that has me literally fighting for my life. Yeah. And it's not what you want. Like I had just taken a new role and I was like excited. First impressions go a long way. I just, I wanted to kick ass in this new job and impress everybody and prove to myself and them that I was, you know, I could do this really well. Um, and I, that just wasn't an option, right? Like I, I had to focus on my life, on my health. Um, I, there was a period in those first six weeks that I had like two to three doctor's appointment a day. Wow. And I was trying to work at the same time and like wow. juggle all of it. Um, I ended up PMing my cancer <laughs> as well, right? Like I had a massive spreadsheet of all the doctor's appointments and I would work with my admin partner to schedule meetings around all of it. And, um, it just, Meadow was so gracious okay. right like so supportive through the entire process mm. um and just gave me exactly what i needed like i had the support to go do what i needed i wanted to work through my treatment which you know that's a very personal choice for everybody to okay. make for me i think the there's just so much going on in your life that you feel like is out of your control when you're going through something like cancer yeah and I just, for my mental well-being, it was important to be able to feel productive and feel like I had control over something. Got it. And so for me, work became my stabilizing force. Interesting. Okay. And, and I remember talking to my manager and they were so great. Like when I told them, they actually went and read a ton of articles about what it takes to manage somebody who's going through a chronic illness oh, and they were very thoughtful about it and i appreciated that and the one thing that they pushed which kind of became like the cornerstone of the entire time that i was working through treatment was when you're going through something like that your energy levels have a max right a lot of times especially when we're younger we think we can push ourselves over our energy levels pull all-nighters things like that yeah, right yeah. definitely don't do any of that anymore no. but when you're going through something like treatment, you literally have a max. Yeah. And yeah. over the course of cancer treatment, that max is shrinking. Right. right. You're right. getting less and less energy over time. Chemo compounds, radiation compounds, all of it is just like kind of taking away at your energy levels. And so it gave us a framework for how to talk about the conversation, which is like, I can give this much of myself. And this is what I'm able to accomplish with that amount of energy. And that's it. Okay. Wow. And if I ever felt like I was overstretching myself or maybe I was having a worse week than I was hoping, I was just very clear about communicating what I could and couldn't do. And my manager supported me, the team rallied around me, and we just we made it so that the amount of work I had was enough to add value but not let anybody down. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that was the thing. I think, you know, when you're working knowing that you can't give it your all, you always you feel guilty about one, yeah. like not wanting to let people down. And so just setting very clear expectations around what you can and can't do is the best way to, to work around that. So, wow, um, a lot of questions about this. I mean, really yeah. interesting, right? When when this happened to you, did you did you deal with this very privately or were you very public about the situation? You know, how did you choose yeah. to tackle that? Yeah, so this happened, I mean, I still, it's funny how these dates stick in your mind and like you think about it. So I was diagnosed on October 11th of 2021. Okay. Um, and I remember October is 
Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Okay. And those first few weeks are just, they're terrifying because you have cancer, you don't know how bad it is. You don't know what the plan is. You don't, you don't, yeah, it's like very scary. And then you get a plan and you start wrapping your head around it and you're like, okay, I got this. Like I have a plan yeah. and I'm just going to tackle it, like take it head on. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the first few weeks I was very private. Mm. I told very few people, like my boss knew. Yeah. Um, and like family knew, of course, and some close, close friends. Yeah. And then I spent those few weeks getting the plan, getting things in order, getting answers yeah. to the hundreds of questions. And then I decided I wanted to be public about it because my story, I have no history of cancer in my family, no breast right. cancer before. Um, I was 35 when I was diagnosed, so five years before they even start doing mammograms. Right, right. So very early in age, I, I did all of the genetic testing, no cancer gene, oh, wow. no breast cancer gene. Like when you look at all of the statistics, it was like a point zero 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 four chance that this happened to me. Just very bad luck. And it happened. Yeah. And so if it could happen to me with that tiny bit of a chance, imagine how many other women are out there yeah. not being vigilant, not giving themselves tests at home and checking, or not getting their mammograms when you are of the right age. Yeah. Not getting the genetic test if it runs in your family. Like there's so many things you can do to be proactive. Yeah. And in this case, being proactive can literally be the difference between life and death. Yeah, of course. Because yeah. if you don't catch it early enough, you're terminal. Right, right. And that's terrifying. And so it really felt important to me, given how shocking it was that I got it and that I had it, to raise as much awareness as I could, especially in women in my age group. Mm -hmm. um, younger women, women who don't have a history, women who would never expect to get this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It could still happen. Yeah, wow. So That's yeah. awesome. I mean, obviously it's not awesome it happened to you, but I think the way you handled it um, yeah. is really incredible. You should be very proud. Yeah. Um, crazy. Yeah, I think really like mindset makes a big difference in these scenarios, like having a positive mindset, focusing on the silver lining. Like, of course I made room for the grief and the anger and the frustration sure. and all of that, but just trying to be positive, productive, and, and then try to do something good with it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Making lemonade out of lemons. And yeah, so, exactly. and I was working at Facebook. And so it was like, it felt very natural to like, I posted my story on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at the time. Okay. Um, and I just, I tried to kind of like reach my audience. I made myself public instead of private. And it was incredible. Like the outpouring of love and support that I got from around the world. Like there were people I hadn't talked to since high school who yeah. reached out and connected and were giving me support. And um, it was, that helped me get through it. You know, like it helped me on the darkest days. Yeah, I can imagine that. It felt good. But also, you know, the idea that maybe you've helped one person. Yes. You know, just one, maybe yeah. two, yeah. who got something checked or like leaned yeah. into the fact they should be doing the mammogram and, and weren't doing because, yeah. you know, it's suddenly real, right? If you know yeah. somebody, maybe yeah. it could happen to me. So, yeah. you know, yeah, bravo. Um, I think that's awesome. Um, interesting. How do you think it's changed you personally? Oh my gosh, so many ways, right? I think one thing like everybody says is it gives you perspective. Yeah. A lot of perspective. Um, I also morbidly joke it aged me. It aged me physically and mentally and emotionally. I think it gives you that wisdom of what really matters in life. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And 
it makes, you know, I think it makes the hard things in work a lot easier. Things don't really, like, bother me it's as much anymore. It's not a big anymore. deal. It's right? not a big no, deal. Yeah. Like, it's not cancer. It's a I need cancer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Like, yeah, we need to work really hard or, oh, this thing isn't going well. But we're lucky we don't work in the medical field. People aren't dying because of our software changes. You yeah, know, like, yeah. there are... It, it's very serious like you're keeping people's businesses sure. going and that really matters and I take that seriously but like you have to keep yourself in check yeah. sometimes yeah. and so I think it helps to just offer that perspective always of you know we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously yeah but we can take our work very seriously and that's that's a you know you can do that at the same time it's interesting it's, I have nothing like a cancer diagnosis to sort of use as the anchor for the story but one thing I've noticed <laughs> of being a, a startup founder is yeah. you know one day something really bad happens you're very miserable then the next day a customer shows up huge contracts yeah. you're like amazing and it's ups and and the ups and downs are so wild yeah. that i find it's leveled me out quite a bit yeah uh, like i'm like so well if something horrible happens well i just something good's gonna happen tomorrow gonna just know it, you know yeah. and vice versa so not the same but uh yeah. my own uh maturing experience of the the wild roller coaster doing a startup yeah um one more thing on that I think that's really mm -hmm. important because this now applies to everybody, right? Like not just me as a survivor, but it also teaches you the importance of boundaries, mm. right? Like work-life balance Okay. and really focusing on health. Like I tell all of my team members, I, I do therapy twice a week. Mental mm -hmm. health matters, Yeah. Okay. right? And then I will also tell them like, oh, I can't meet at this time in the afternoon because I have Pilates. Okay. And exercise is really important. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so I think it you can use it to lead by example to yeah. your team around mental health and physical health and drawing those boundaries and like they all know i work hard yeah right yeah. it's not like anyone's questioning whether i work hard but i'm also working hard at my entire life yeah i yeah. make time for my family and quality time with loved ones and i also make time for my health yeah um, i'm not pulling all-nighters i need my sleep we all do it's super yeah. important i learned this the hard so, way yeah, yeah. Oh, I very, uh, very much like that. I'm leading by example. Um, you know, I think the benefits of sort of staying fit and staying healthy, like really often terms like stress, yeah, pay down. Also, just you know, working out is a bit like putting yourself through torture, right? It really is. You know, I mean, the struggle. I use the steam room in the sauna now. I sit there, you know, I try and stay for longer every time. Yeah. I'm like, Why am I doing this? I just like torture myself. It's practice for the torture of you know existence. And everything else. Yeah, yes. everything else. Um, but yeah, so important to 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 spend time on that stuff. How do you think the, you know, what you went through has changed your your perspective on career? I and mean, you talked a little bit about what, like, yeah. happened, so like, you know, how you work with others, like, has that changed? You know, so it's actually really interesting because when I was going through cancer, it felt like I kind of put my career on hold naturally because I was very, sure. very yeah. busy doing something else that was yeah. very important. Pianing another project. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. and then, I finished my treatment and I just found myself really eager and hungry to learn mm -hmm. at a pace that I hadn't. And I think it was almost like I wanted to make up for lost time. Mm -hmm. And so I, w I was surprised to see that hunger in myself um, and eagerness. And that's actually what brought me to strike, mm -hmm. right? Because I found myself, I was at Meta, I finished my treatments and I was a creator leader. And I'm like, you know, I worked on creators at Twitch for six years. Mm -hmm. Now I've done it at Meta for almost two years. I was like, I want to do something really different. Mm. I want to push myself out of my comfort zone in more ways than one mm. and, and learn a lot. Yeah. And 
that's why like I left consumer product. Yeah, that's right. a big shift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a huge shift. I did it for a decade. That. Yeah. And, and it was not just consumer product, but social media specifically within yeah. consumer product. And I was like, I'm done. And that's how I ended up at Stripe. I'm working in fintech. I'm working on software services, like very, very different worlds. That is a complicated domain. Yeah. And, and, and I love it, right? Because yeah. I am learning a lot in so many different dimensions. Um, and that's what I wanted. So, yeah, I think it's really like... That surprised me about myself, mm. but I just, that's why I encourage everyone, like, check in with yourself every six to 12 months yeah. and get a sense of, like, how are you feeling about your career? What, how hungry are you yeah. for discomfort? Yeah. yeah. And um, that changes drastically just based on whatever might be going on in our personal lives. Yeah. And it might surprise you to really, like, check in and have that honest conversation with yourself. Yeah. 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 Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, about Stripe. Um, yeah. And the culture of Stripe. So, yes. you know, I spent a little bit of time there, not a lot. Um, Vivek talked about this a bit, but he was also fairly good. Um, Josh Williams, who was the first ever Studio Z guest, is now, you're working with him. Yes. Right? He's, in your, yeah. he's in your area. Um, Josh is great. Yeah, tell me your, your seven months. Is that right? That's right. View of like Stripe's culture. How would you describe it to an outsider, especially comparing to the other places that we've talked about? Yeah. So I watched your chat with Vivek. Okay. And I have to say, the word he uses is perfect. Mm. Earnest. Earnest. Stripe is so earnest. I would I would say like wholesome. Wholesome. <laughs> um, very strong academic culture, like huge nerd culture in the best way possible, and that yeah. definitely trickles down from the co-founders. Like Patrick yeah. and John are so awesome. Yeah. They are so curious. Yeah. Um, and we're all huge nerds, and yeah. I love it. Yeah. And that I think has lots of good in it and then there's always too much of a good thing and it leads to you know like what could we do better right so i think one thing that's really great is that anybody can propose something like they will they might talk to anybody and they will ask questions and they'll be curious and it's a really great way to be able to communicate with people um but what that also leads to is a super strong document culture mm -hmm. lots of document mm -hmm. writing mm -hmm. but we both know like the adverse impacts of like too much document writing sometimes you get trapped in writing the perfect document or getting mm -hmm. all of the right data and evidence and not being able to make progress as quickly as you want to would you agree that facebook is the antithesis of that yes so, right we really want anything back, right? like yeah. it was not i mean we did quips but it was so transient and thrown away yeah. and you know, reviews, we would do them, but nothing like why someone's Stripe or I yeah. hear from Amazon or, yeah. or what it sounds like you did at Switch. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I think it, it is a different culture, but I really like that about yeah. it. I think, you know, like there's something for everybody and you kind of kind of gravitate towards what really yeah. resonates with you. And I have to say, like, Stripe feels like the best blend of all the different culture types that I've experienced That's so awesome. far. Yeah. That's awesome. Any downsides? Any, like... Rather than say downsides, so you're going to come in, you're going to make a Charmin-sized impact at Stripe. Yeah. What would you change? Like, what, what, what impact would you like? What positive impact would you like to have on the culture of Stripe? Okay, this is a great question. And I think my answer is very tailored to being on our RFA team. Okay. Right? So Stripe, everybody knows Stripe for being an incredible payments company. Yeah. And Stripe was focused on the impatient developer ruthlessly and yeah. it's such an incredible persona right like everyone can imagine the impatient developer and everything that they built was to make it really easy for the impatient developer to get payments up and running for a business mm -hmm. what we're doing in rfa is very different mm. i don't know how many impatient developers are trying to integrate 
with our business, right? Like we're helping businesses grow revenue and manage revenue. Mm. And so it's different user personas. Right. And so this is actually a new muscle for Stripe, right? It's a different type of operating, a different type of customer, a different way of thinking. And so I think like if I really care, like what is my Charmin sized impact going to be? It's how can we help the rest of Stripe learn about the best way to build RFA for our businesses? And it might be operating slightly differently. It might be thinking about different metrics, different user personas, and and that's going to take time. I, I like this. This impatient developer, it sounds like a, a useful phrase whenever you're thinking about trade-offs, which is yeah. like a big thing for a PM. Yeah. You know, this or this. Well, what would the impatient developer want? So now you need a new anchor yeah, for what's making trade-offs for RFA. Yeah. Um, uh, do you have one or can you talk I mean, about we're it? We're starting to think about that, right? Like we want to help ambitious businesses grow their revenue. Yeah. Okay. And so maybe it's ambitious businesses. Yeah. Right. Thinking yeah. about like the open AIs of the world yeah. that started with Stripe and grew incredibly and yeah. so fast. Yeah. We want to be able to keep up with their growth and help them continue to grow. So would you change anything about sort of the, the operating culture of Stripe? Like, would you do less documents? Would you, do you wish it was more, like a little bit more ad hoc or? I think what I'm pushing for the most is that we act with a sense of urgency. Mm. And so I think it's okay to write documents, but be super crisp and clear. Mm. They don't need to be 10 page documents. Like I actually push the team to write a one or two pager and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's actually harder to say what you want to say succinctly it is, yeah, and yeah. get a point across in a way that is justified, right? Yeah. Like include the data, include what's necessary, um, but don't put eight pages in an appendix. That's the yeah. easy way out. So that's, I think that's really where I'm challenging my team is like, be more intentional, move with urgency. We still need to write documents and build trust and earn the confidence of our leaders, but yeah. be more intentional about it. It's a tricky balance though, isn't it? I think it's a fair, is it a Hemingway quote that is if I had more time and a rope less? I think it's <laughs> yes. someone like that. Yes. And you know, I think about that, you know, something I sort of learned at Facebook was about how you put work on others. And so you writing a 10 page document, you know, maybe you save time by not spending it some time condensing yeah. it down. Then then everybody else to has to write. Yeah. That was the thing that struck. I get these enormous documents like Yeah. I've got like weeks of reading to do yeah. here. We use um uh, Zooplo we use a tool called Loom quite a bit. It was actually just purchased by Atlassian that we were down. And so if you do a video recording, you like can screencast or you know, we, we have a little thing internally called ZooTube where we make like internal culture notes and so on. Yeah. And we have to kind of rule like trying to keep it down to three minutes though. Because it's so easy to sit there and create an eight minute video just kind of going on. And that's like work you're putting on yeah. everybody else to what spend eight minutes. You can do the math and try and uh, you know try and be succinct, try and like really focus on the concision. Yeah. Of communication, I think that's a, a huge thing. There was one other thing we wanted to talk about, um, and that was uh, like a, a note you found, I think, on Substack. Yep. Um, so I'll, I'll let you introduce it. Like this, this yeah. is really interesting. I was I was reading it this morning. Yeah. So I really loved this. I just read the article earlier this week, but it's basically thinking about how senior leaders operate in a company, mm. and they talk about balancing the high and the low. So operating high and operating low. Mm. Everybody knows the exec who operates high, like, you know, lives in the clouds, always thinking like big picture, big vision, selling it to the team, 
But then people will ask, like, what do they do all day? What are mm. they really doing, right? Mm. And then that doing, that's the operating low. Like, the leader who can roll up their sleeves, dig into the details, and, mm. like, really drive execution and, like, get into it and and really be able to speak to the ins and outs of what the team is doing. Mm. Um, and it's so interesting because in that article, they're like, oh, the, the people who think high, they're the ones who get promoted. Mm. Because they're thinking high, but then they're also the ones who get laid off because they're not necessarily adding as much direct value as the people who are thinking low and operating low. And then the people who are operating low might never get promoted because they're always in the details, but they're always going to be valuable employees at the company because they're getting shit done. And so it's this super interesting balance of like, as a leader, how can you... I think like assess the company culture mm. and figure out the right balance of operating high and low mm. based on the company that you're at. Have you got any examples of how you, you started since you read this article and I think it was yeah. this week, but is, it, is there anything like tangible to you where you thought, uh, I should do X more and Y less as a result of reading that, like say strong. Yeah, that's it. I think so right now we're in the middle of our like annual performance reviews. Okay. And so I've actually been thinking about like, as I think about my team members and how they're balancing their time, mm. it's a great way to use as a framework to help people be more intentional with how they spend their time. Mm. Right. So now I can say, look, you are operating really low and it's adding a ton of value, but you, if you want to grow as a PM leader, you have to think more about operating high. Mm. And how can we get that shift maybe to like 60, 60% operating low, 40% operating mm. high. And you can almost think like the more senior you get, maybe it's like 30% operating low, 70% operating high and starting to make, maybe quantify it so that it's really easy for people to understand like, okay, how am I spending my time? Mm. Am I doing the right amount of operating low and operating high That's based awesome. on where I am in my career? And overlay that with what Stripe's expectations are yeah, of yeah. their leaders. And so that's what I love about Stripe. I think Stripe really indexes on leaders who operate low. Yeah. Like Patrick is in the dashboards looking yeah. at the metrics every week. Worrying about the yes. cookies. Worrying about everything. Like, and it's incredible. Like wow. they are able to process such a high bandwidth amount of inter- information. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. Like how can your brain even take all that? But that's what they do. And that's yeah. how they've built a successful business over the last decade. Right. So um, that, that expectation is there. And I think it ties back to that academic nature of the culture of the company. And so there's this high expectation of like making sure leaders are operating well. And so you were asking like, what do I want to do more of? Mm. I do want to be that person who knows exactly what metrics our team is measuring itself on for success, right? And I want to know how we're doing, and I want to be asking those curious questions. And I also want to be able to send that to our leaders, right? Like, here's our dashboards. Let's be transparent. This is how it's going. This is where we have work to do, and this is where we're knocking it out of the park. Interesting. Yeah, and so many sort of echoes of, of you know, my life hasn't been through all of it, you know. <laughs> Um, it's kind of funny, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to decide where to pick it up. One thing I'm thinking about um, that, that struck me as you talked about that, and that's, you know, you've managed a lot of PMs, I've managed PMs myself, and one thing I've found is it's not always super easy to get people to switch more into the operating high mode. Yeah. I've always found it tends to come quite naturally as a lagging indicator of people's self-confidence in the organisation yeah. and in the domain, and you can really, like, accelerate it past that 
that confidence. Yeah. I don't know if, that, if this makes sense. No, it absolutely does. I think me personally throughout my entire career, I've suffered from a ton of imposter syndrome. Right. And that I think that's exactly what you're describing is right. a lot of times we are our own biggest enemy. Right. Our imposter syndrome holds us back from operating as high as we could be. Yeah. Like I know personally, I need to feel really confident in a topic before I speak up Yes. boldly yeah. about it yeah but i also notice in myself where i have dug into the details i have tons of opinions and i'm not oh, shy yeah. right and so it's like the, i think the question really becomes how can i get opinionated across the entire org as fast as possible mm. and that's how i like to think about my imposter syndrome is like okay where am i feeling imposter syndrome oh it's in this area it's like oh i haven't spent enough time there oh that's so good. what am i going to do to get more confident in that area and then, then it's just the mechanisms that you need to, to build up that confidence. That's great advice. But yeah, okay, so yeah. we turn it around, right? Yeah. Like turn the imposter syndrome into the indicator of where you need to be spending more time and helping you figure that out. Yeah, it's funny. I think, you know, when you talked about going detail orientation around like, always sharing about the metrics, I don't know if I'd say in my career that's always been my strong suit. I don't, yeah. I'm like, you know, a little bit more on the mad scientist end of the spectrum, <laughs> I think. Um, um, but actually at Zoopla now, obviously in the weeds of everything like that my recall of the numbers of like you know how much any customer is yeah. paying or like how long it took someone to convert whatever is absolute and that's i don't think it's because i necessarily got better i'm just so much more invested yes. in those details than i ever was before and it kind of feels like the answer is my motivation is very intrinsic now so i don't know it's more company so yeah. like it's it's much more but you got to do the work yeah i think that's it right you like do. what are you feeling impossible you, you should do the low. work yeah operate the low yeah. yeah get in there and that'll free you up to go and like uh do some of the high with yeah. with confidence okay awesome i mean this has been great i've really enjoyed this chat today thanks for coming in so much so famously you know one of the reasons you're here is because vivek uh dropped your name at the end yeah. of the the interview i did with him so I'm going to do the same to you right now. So I love it. Charmaine, yes. who should I interview next and why? All right. So you were mentioning earlier that you haven't, I don't think you've met Twitch people. So I'm actually going to pick an mm -hmm. awesome Twitch person. Her name is Allison Huffman. Okay. She is the VP of Community Health Product. Oh, wow. Okay. So she leads all the trust and safety products at Twitch. Nice. Incredible. She probably can't talk about half of what she does, <laughs> but... She, I'm sure she has a lot to say about just keeping the internet safe and keeping live streaming safe for everybody out there. Okay, that sounds awesome. Yeah. So, well, uh, Alison Huffman, Huffman, it was, yeah. okay. Alison, you're going to be getting this little clip sent to you, um, so hopefully we'll see you on the show. Where is Alison based? Based in the Bay Area. Okay, I, I have a mobile studio now, I'll, I'll be out yeah. I'll be out in San Francisco. I'll <laughs> get Andy more as well at some point, right? I'm going to have to yes. go out to the Bay Area for that. Charmaine, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great chat. Hope everybody enjoyed it as well. Be sure to subscribe. We'll be doing one of these typically once a month. Um, the more people that subscribe and follow, 